Hi everyone, welcome to the next of our events uh, on British economics after Brexit. Delighted today that we've got a fantastic panel to discuss the economics of populism. We've got Martin Sambu, who's the European economics commentator from the Financial Times. Matt Goodwin, who's director of Legata Institute's Centre for UK Prosperity. And last but absolutely not least, our very own Paula Surridge, who is deputy director of UK in the Changing Europe and at the University of Bristol. So let, let me start with a sort of generic question to get us kicked off for each of you, which is, what is the link between economics and populism, simply put? Who would like to go first? Martin, you're on top of my screen. Given that I'm the least scholarly of everyone here, why don't I go first with my sort of journalistic observations and, and the others can take me apart or correct me afterwards. Uh, I mean, the way the way I look at it is you know, taking taking as a starting point that there has been a rise in in populism, by which I understand uh, these these sort of movements that are anti-establishment, anti-system, and that tend to divide in their rhetoric the population into real people, the genuine people, and the corrupt elites. Uh, I mean, starting from the from 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 just the observation that we've had a rise in the political strength of those movements. Uh, why is that? Uh, they obviously have both an economic and a cultural uh, articulation of what they're about. There's a sort of values rhetoric uh, and there's an economic rhetoric and they all have that. And it's important to notice that they, they all have an economic proposition in addition to the, the cultural complaints. Um, and it seems to me that the best way to explain the rise is to look at you know what has changed in our societies to, to account for that rise. Um, and, and I tend to think that at the bottom of this, we have to go to economic explanations uh, because, of course, values drive some of the support for these movements. Um, but it's not as if, you know, if, if that's going to account the rise, then either we have to say that sort of anti-elite, anti-globalization, somewhat authoritarian nativist values have increased in strength over time, it's not clear that they have. Our societies have moved rather in a more liberal direction if we look in a sort of 30, 40, 50 year perspective. Uh, or it has to be that even if those values haven't in themselves changed so much in the population, uh, they have become politically more salient and drive political choice in a way that they didn't before. But then we have to ask, why is that? And I think the answer to that has to do with economic change, uh, because it's very easy once you look to see at, see the things that have changed economically in our societies over the last 50 years or so. Um, and, and the main observation I notice is that we went from a period of three decades after the war, where in every Western society you saw convergence, a fall in inequality between individuals, between regions, very importantly, uh, between backgrounds, between whether you came from a highly educated or less educated background and so on. And that was replaced around 1980 pretty much everywhere with either a stagnation in that convergence or a reverse, a divergence economically, again, along all of those dimensions. Uh, and also, if you sort of trace the ups and downs of those economic processes, uh, you find that it's precisely when when things are diverging economically that you tend to see these populist movements do well. So you have the 1980s, which is when the, the first right-wing populist movements came on the scene in continental Europe. 
And then, of course, you have uh, the last decade after the global financial crisis. So, so it seems to me that while there's culture and economics going on all the time, both in the rhetoric and clearly in the motivation of voters um, and in the policies that these movements support or the, or the issues that they campaign on, uh, the actual change over time and between countries seem to map quite nicely onto these very deep changes in economic structure. So, you know, I'll just stop there. That's kind of my, my principal observation. Uh, it just seems that we can't really account for the political changes without referring to the economy. And looking at the economic changes, uh, we see that there are things that quite nicely lead to uh, an explanation that also makes psychological sense uh, for the political changes. Thank so you. Let Matt, me stop come, there. Matt, I'm going to come to you in a sec. Just to say to the audience, I mean, by some sort of record, I think we had 10 questions before we actually started. So uh, if you can vote for the questions you want me to put to the panel, that will make my life uh, a lot easier and might also lead to the questions you want answered, getting answered today. So if you can do that, that would be great just to help sort the questions out. Matt, over to you. Yeah, thanks, uh, Anand. So I think the the relationship between economics and populism is obviously contested, and I think the um, the dominant view, if you like, I think is is very much that economics comes first as a driver of uh, populism and and culture second, and I think that was sort of just 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 uh, uh, summarised. I take a, a different view. Um, I certainly don't think that it's all culture and nothing to do with economics. I don't think anybody thinks thinks that. But I certainly think that culture is sitting in the driving seat and economics is in the passenger seat, playing a, a backup role. Um, if we were to take the view that actually it's really the rising inequality that has driven populism from, from the end of the post-war consensus from the 70s onwards, um, I think there's absolutely no doubt inequality has played a role. Um, but you could just as convincingly make the argument that actually from the end of what I would call the classic era in representative politics from 45 onwards, you also saw a, a huge amount of social change and you saw a huge amount of cultural change too. And lots of that wasn't actually related to the economy. We saw a representative politics break down, become much more insular, reorganized and reshaped around a middle-class university uh, elite, if you'd like to call it that. We saw the breakdown of collective institutions that once uh, helped to keep countries uh, bound together, the collapse of religion, uh, strong families, uh, class-based associations, trade unions, working men's clubs, etc. Um, and we also saw the uh, sweeping effects of not just economic globalization, but cultural globalization. We saw big changes in demography, we saw the rise of migration, uh, and we saw more generally the increase of diversity per se. And we now know from a lot of research, particularly in social psychology, Karen Stenner being the most prominent example, that a lot of that cultural change activated value divides that were already latent in Western societies, that they triggered, if you like, uh, social conservatives and a another sort of group authoritarians within our societies to push back against what they perceive to be very threatening social and cultural change. And some of those voters were economically left behind, but certainly not all of them were. And that explains, for example, why so many fairly affluent conservatives have rallied around populist movements. It also, I think, explains why these movements have pulled together a cross-class coalition uh, of not just manual workers, but also 
uh, folks who are self-employed. And also in Europe now, we're seeing lots of growing evidence that populists are connecting with um, younger voters, young women in particular, parts of the LGBT uh, communities as well. And in places like Germany, um, individuals that have descended from migrant families. So the, the coalitions of, of, uh, that have rallied around populism are changing too. And I think just, just lastly, the, the evidence on values, and I'm sure Paula will have a lot to say about this too, I think the evidence on values now is overwhelming. Uh, I think uh, you know, if we put values into a model, I mean, it, they just go so far, so, so much further to explaining support for populism and things like income and class. I mean, it's not really close. Um, but then that begs the question of, well, perhaps where we might forge some common ground is by saying, well, rising inequality perhaps um, is entrenching some of those values divides and is in itself a sort of triggering process that's making people a little bit more sensitive to cultural change. And I'm certainly open to that. But then we also have some evidence that shows that actually people who feel culturally under threat from the changes that they're seeing in society are more likely to feel economically under threat. So in that case, again, it's culture before uh, economics. Uh, and the dominant view, I think, within social science has very much been that actually it's economic inequality and that makes you feel culturally under threat. But actually there is some research recently over the last couple of years that suggests if you feel culturally under threat, you're more likely then to feel economically under threat too. So I think the jury's out. It's clearly both of these things are playing a role. But ultimately, um, my view is very much that culture is in the driving seat and economics is in the passenger seat. I mean, you've, you've, you've anticipated the most popular question in a way, which is from Joan Grant, who's saying, given that wages have fallen for working class people in, for over two decades, is populism simply a new form of class struggle? And you've said actually no, because it's a, it's a, there's, a, there's a cross-class coalition here that would sort of argue against that. But presumably, Matt, I mean, it's possible to be relatively affluent and still, and still dissatisfied for largely economic reasons, isn't it? I mean, simply, the, the fact simply that affluent people are part of this coalition doesn't mean that their grievance isn't economic, does it? No, but it means if we ask them why they're voting for populist parties, why they voted for UKIP in the UK or Donald Trump in, in the US, we know that their worries over migration and in particular demographic change, the pace of demographic change, and also their anxiety over the pace of social change is really important. So for example, Matt Grossman in the US has shown that people's anxiety over the pace of social change not only drove them towards Donald Trump, but was independent of how they thought about issues like the economy and race, uh, which is really important because what we tend to say is, well, social change is just normal and it's modernization and it's just, you're never gonna stop it and it's part of life. But for lots of voters who are primed to think in a more tra traditionalist way, who align themselves to groups, who align themselves to community, stability, moderation, rapid change of the sort that we've seen over the last two years, for example, is deeply, deeply unsettling. Uh, and I don't think we've really fully thought that through um, as, as much as we could have done. Paula, sorry, I butted in before you. No, that's okay. Um, so I come at this from a slightly different perspective and I wanted to make two points really in relation to this. First of all, when I'm thinking about values and how they might be playing into this debate, I think that economics are expressed through values as well. So there are economic values and cultural values. And I don't think, I think we, we mischaracterize the debate when we set it up as an either or. Um, but I also wanted to strip back a little bit um, the idea of populism itself, because as when we start to generate models to try and explain these things by putting in these class, education, income, all these different things, we always have to have an outcome variable. 
And our outcome variable is nearly always how people voted, either at a referendum or for a particular party, but that carries with it all sorts of other connotations. It isn't in any sense a measure of populism per se, it's a measure of populism plus whatever that party or movement has attached itself to. Now, it just so happens that when we start to talk about Brexit and Trump in particular, partly because they happened in the same year and at the same point seem part of the same movement, they attach themselves to a particular set of values that also tap onto some of these divides. So it's actually quite complicated to disentangle not only the economics versus culture issue, which is complex enough, but also what that vote is actually an expression of. Is it an expression of populism or is it an expression of liking the particular values that that populist has attached to populism and I think that might help us get into some of the things that Matt's talking there about how in some places um, young voters for example are, are able to be brought on board by, by populist movements um, as well. I think the other thing that's partly missing from this debate about inequalities is this focus on class and income when education is such an important part of this whole question. And it's quite usual in the literature to sort of move back from these um, cultural values, which are strongly correlated with education levels, but to sort of stop there and say that means it's a cultural explanation without then questioning in a kind of deeper sense how those education inequalities came about in the first place, because education inequalities, of course, have got economic roots. And so all these things are connected together in a really complex way. Um, and I think the role of education is, is in some senses the sort of central pin there that we can use to move off in both directions, both economics um, and culture. Now, we've got about four or five questions on what is populism, uh, three of which came in before we started. And I think Martin started us off with a working definition just to just to retrace our steps so everyone's happy. Are we, are we all happy with how Martin defined populism? Martin, do you want to reiterate quickly? So, well, I, I'm I'm basically bastardizing the the Jan Werner Müller uh, definition, which mm -hmm. is, which is a movement that politically defines itself on the basis of an opposition between the real people and you know whoever isn't the real people who are typically represented in in the elite, which can be a very wide elite. Um, so, so it's it's almost a sort of definition based on the on the rhetoric and political strategy that these movements uh, that these movements use, but it's one that opposes a uh, a sort of notion of the genuine, the real people, who are almost by definition then repressed or left behind or not catered for or not listened to, uh, and everybody else. But you know, people people define these things in very different ways. But but I find that uh, a useful a useful way of of, um, of identifying. identifying okay. Are both of you content with that or would you question it, challenge it, broaden it, narrow it? I wouldn't challenge it, but I can perhaps add some, some flesh to it because I, for me, I'm interested in how we might define populism amongst voters rather than populism as a characteristic of parties or politicians. Um, and I've got here some of the items that have been developed to, you, to, to measure populism through survey. So just to give people a flavor of how we do that, we use items such as um, the people and not politicians should make our most important policy decisions. Uh, I would rather be represented by a citizen than by a specialized politician. And these are the kinds of items that have been developed to measure whether or not 
um, ordinary voters are populist rather than just using vote for a party that political scientists have said are populist. And I thought that might be helpful to people to contextualize how some of this gets fed into models. I think just, just briefly, Anna, I, I think it's also important to, to recognize there is a debate about whether populism is just a style that is about um, amplifying this, this us versus them political rhetoric or whether, or whether national populism in particular is an ideology in its own right, is what we've called a thick uh, ideology, a substantive body of thought, uh, and th that it isn't just a kind of uh, campaigning device. Um, and certainly that's a view that, 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 that I would hold and, and Roger Eatwell, my co-author, would hold, and that if you look at these movements, it's not really the anti-establishment sentiment that is at their core. They're, they're angry with the establishment because they perceive the establishment to have fundamentally, in their eyes, uh, weakened the nation. Uh, it is ultimately their nationalism that comes first. Uh, and, and I think just by focusing on the stylistic elements of populism, we just lose sight of, of some of that. And so we would define it more as a movement that seeks to prioritize the interests and the concerns of the uh, national group uh, first uh, against what it perceives as being uh, a, a neglectful, distant, um, uh, homogenous uh, elite. But of course, I mean, it can be performative and substantive at the same time, can't it? They're not mutually exclusive. I mean, in the case of if you take Johnson and Trump, there is a performative element to both of them that is unmissable. Sure. But the only reason I raise that is because the debate often will then turn into something along the lines of, well, maybe if we have stronger institutions or we change the process of politics, maybe we will get rid of populism. Um, but actually, you know, if we accept as a starter that the ideological appeal of these movements is not really just about hammering the, the MPs and the out of touch elites, it is actually connected to a particular worldview, uh, a more culturally conservative worldview, uh, which prioritizes group identities, uh, allegiances to uh, the nation, uh, a priority, uh, sorry, a preference for uh, stability and community, that it isn't as individualistic as, say, liberalism. Uh, I think once we, we get to that essence of, of what, the, what the underlying value set uh, is here, um, then I think it's a much more um, fruitful discussion in the same way that if we say it's primarily about economics and if we just have um, you know, stronger growth and a little bit less inequality, all of this will go away. Well, because these voters are principally thinking about the nation, um, it won't just go away if we give them a little bit more GDP. Um, and I think that's probably where we enter, you know, the more the, the policy debate, um, perhaps more than the academic. I mean, Martin, I'm going to let you come back. I mean, just, just to, I mean, I hope this is a fair summary. To summarise your book, you talk about the sort of three pillars of the, of the existing order. There's a liberal democratic sort of political pillar. There's an economic pillar built on solidarity and there's a sort of international pillar built on globalization and openness. And it seems to me that in your book, your argument is that the economic pillar has crumbled and gone wrong. Uh, and actually that's where we should look for solutions. And so there isn't a problem when it comes to that third pillar, which is globalization. And you're, you're very welcome to wave your book about for, for those of short, those who are as hard of sight as I am and can't quite see the title clearly. Uh, is that, would you stick to that? That actually the issue here isn't globalization and openness because it seems to me that Matt's making very much the opposite case that that is precisely where some of these problems come no, from. Uh, absolutely, you know, thanks for taking the discussion in the direction because that's what I wanted to to, to come back to, to comment on on Matt's and, and some of Paula's points on as well. Uh, I mean, just one more thing on, on what is populism. Um, 
I mean, it depends on whether you want a concept that also fits for left-wing populism, right? So you know, that depends a bit on the purpose of the discussion. But one, you know, right-wing populism obviously has a different substantive content and policy content than left-wing populism. They also have some things in common. So it depends on, you know, do we want the more all-encompassing concept or not? But I completely agree that there is substantive content and policy content here. And people vote for these movements partly because of that content and not just because of the style. In fact, I think that the that the style or this this sort of uh, splitting up of of the nation, if you like, in in the real people and and its enemies, and the when it comes in the ugliest incarnation, then actually uh, entails some some of what the substantive content has to be. It kind of uh, it, it advantages some some kinds of policies over others. You can't at the same time think that. There's the people against the elite, um, without also committing to to some policies over others, and in particular maybe uh, caring less or even rejecting the importance of certain institutional proprieties. And, and that's where I come to your your uh, your point, Anand. Um, it's really important, I think, to recognise that many of these movements were actually the first in the party political system to really raise some of these deep economic problems and challenges that Western societies have increasingly faced over the last 40, 50 years. Um, most centrist politicians have treated them with benign neglect or at best something that can be resolved with a little bit of redistribution in the tax system, um, which was wrong. Um, but it was the outside of the establishment, the fringe movements or originally fringe, uh, sometimes then eventually taking over that were the first to point this out. And, and this is a point I'm trying to make uh, in, in that three pillar argument that you refer to, um, that the established order had the sort of liberal democratic bit, the economic solidarity bit of the post-war consensus and the international openness bit. The middle one has gone wrong. And the first people to point that out and say, we need to change this and, and here is a different way of doing things. Of course, they got support and they got support, I think in part on that ground. Um, I think what's going to be really interesting going forward uh, now that other parties have kind of caught on, <laughs> they've realized we need to have something to offer people who've uh, been at the, you know, drawn the short end, got the short end of the stick of economic change. Um, and so you see, you know, take, take the leveling up agenda in the UK, for example, but, you know, there are equivalent things in many other countries. It's really an attempt to to rest back that mostly economic pillar, which has cultural aspects, obviously, um, from from the more populist insurgent uh, movements. So, so I think you know this sort of thinking makes me still think that economics is very much at the root of this, or you know, to use uh, Matt's metaphor, in the driving seat. That's where you will turn the wheel, if you like. Uh, by having economic policies that address some of those those concerns. I love these car metaphors, and I'm hoping we get on to self-driving cars before long as another metaphor. But Matt, I will come to you in a sec, but just, and to you as well, Paul, I just wanted to challenge you a little bit, Martin, because one of the interesting things that came out of some polling that the Policy Institute at King's did last week was the fact that it tends to be graduates who think that income inequality has got worse and needs to be addressed, whereas actually working class people don't. And I think those findings were also similar to some that the RSA came up with when discussing these sorts of things. How do you explain that paradox that the people who you're saying 
should get more out of this system because they're the losers out of it don't seem to think that there's that income inequality per se has got worse look i'd like to try and answer that by by getting back to some points that that paula and matt uh, made uh, so one thing is th th this is part of the kind of general challenge that well it seems that income doesn't really explain political choice or political preference or, or orientation as much as it should if economics is as important as, as I think it is. Uh, so my answer to that is, and, and Paula touched on this, well, education clearly is. Uh, I, I think we all agree that education is an important variable here. Um, mm. But of course, education uh, and economics are related because what has happened in the economy uh, over decades is that basically having high economic uh, educational credentials are an increasingly important part of your prospects for economic success. Uh, so when you talk about, you know, affluent, uh, affluent conservatives supporting the Brexit party, uh, for example, I think there's a way to account for that, which is something like, given that education is important, we, we know that these will be partly people who are affluent despite not having very high levels of, of formal education, you know, successful business people, for example. Um, they will know that people like them today, because they tend to be older, we know that too, would not actually have the chance to have the sort of success that they have had. So people like them, even if they are doing well, people like them are not doing well given how the economy, what the economy has turned into. You can make the same argument about place. So you can be successful in a place that not, that's not doing well. And I think, you know, plausibly, that's why we see this still very strong correlation between the economy at place level and support uh, for, populist, for, for populist movements. I mean, you see, for example, these, uh, these studies by Timo Fetzer about uh, the impact of austerity on, on local authorities and the link from that to voting for UKIP or for Brexit. So again, uh, you know, individual economic situation uh, isn't the same as, individual, as economic political motivation, if you like. Uh, people might care about other people uh, and they will typically, I think, care about people like them, even if they individually have done well. Um, the final point is, um, Paula was talking about how economics and, and values, there are economic values. I, I think that goes in, in several ways. It's also that cultural values and individual attitudes are economically important. Uh, if you take two people one who has more, you know, call them traditional values, values, community, stability, small place, traditional values, and somebody who values change, novelty, diversity, unpredictability. It's very clear that the economy, the structure of the economy has moved in a way that favors, makes it easier for somebody of the second type than for somebody of the first type. Is that culture or is it values? Well, it's both, obviously. Uh, but again, it's economic change that has made this more important. So, so those are the ways I think about the, uh, you know, what, what seem at first sight like paradoxes in, in the polling, but that I actually think there's a, there's a very sensible way to account for. Matt, sorry for kept you waiting. No, no, it's very interesting. I, I think if you, if you look at sort of where we are in political science, I think there is... Um, and hopefully I'm not speaking out of turn for the political scientists watching, but I think it's fair to say there is now a consensus 
that we are essentially moving into a new era in democratic politics that is quite different from the era that essentially was left by the Industrial Revolution, that we've basically moved from a single left-right economic dimension that was anchored very strongly in class uh, and, a, and a, a tight emotional bond between different social classes and different political parties. And that really from the 60s and 70s onwards, um, we've moved into a two-dimensional space that um, is organized not just around left and right, but what we might call um, liberal and conservative or um, global and national, whatever your preferred term. Uh, and the problem for existing parties that I think we've seen so dramatically in Britain is that that second divide has obviously cut across the traditional left-right divide. And that's why all of our electorates have not only been shaken up, but also why, why they're being realigned. So we now have fundamentally different electorates behind both the Conservative and the Labour parties that we did um, uh, than we did as recently as 2015. So the electorates have changed and they've, they've done that primarily because of their values. Um, uh, and the levelling up agenda, I think is a really interesting example because I, I don't interpret the levelling up agenda as being about economics. I don't interpret it as being about just chucking money at regions. I think, I think I see it more as being linked to social status and esteem and more fundamentally recognition uh, or respect for communities that have been on the wrong side of a settlement that has been really disinterested in what they had to say um, uh, and what they thought for half a century. And I think reducing that to, well, this is you know, evidence of, of uh, the role of economics and populism, I think partly is, is too narrow. Um, and so that brings us into this emerging discussion within social science or a, uh, a, a, a recycled discussion around the role of social status and maybe actually what what stands between Martin and myself on this is is perhaps not just education but actually subjective social status and whether people feel that they're being recognized and respected and that is something that I think goes a little bit beyond education and education certainly part of it you know we can see already how the certain groups are not respected within the education system um, but I think it also takes us into a much more fertile territory where we become a little bit less zoomed in on things like income um, and class and we begin to perhaps step back and think about the extent to which certain groups for sometimes entirely legitimate reasons feel that they've been stripped of social status by political institutions by media institutions, by cultural institutions. Um, and uh, it may tap into some of the work that Paula is doing um, as well on values. Paula, you can tell us. I can tell you. <laughs> I think there's, there's lots of interesting work being done at the moment. Um, some recent work by the BES team, as well as the um, work on social status that Matt's already spoken about, which is starting to look at this idea of group identities seriously. Um, and, and catch up with that. Uh, that's really interesting. I think there's something in there, but I think there's also some issues. Now it could be, it's to do with how we collect the data and that actually the questions we ask on surveys are not very good at picking this stuff up, but actually finding people who say that they have strong identities based on their income, their education and so on is quite difficult. People don't have strong identities based on their education. And if they do, they tend to be graduates. So graduates are quite happy 
to attach identity to that because actually it already has status. Whereas finding groups that actually think of themselves as belonging to a group of low educated is much more difficult. And I think that gets us into something quite interesting about how identities are ranked. So I did some work a long, long time ago on class identity. And there was a whole qualitative literature then about working class identity, having being a spoiled identity for women in particular. Um, around various debates, sort of going back to the time of, of debates about um, teenage pregnancy and so on, that, that, that being working class was a spoiled identity for women. And I think there might be something now about a kind of lack of a positive identity for the people who are in those um, left behind, for want of a better shorthand, places, and the potential role that national identity then plays as being a positive identity that people can attach to in a way that they can't attach positivity and status to some of the other identities um, because, they've, because they've slipped down the order of identities over time. And I think there's, there's lots of work to do there, but I don't think our survey questions are yet getting at this very well. There are some good questions on this, um, on the Understanding Society survey. Um, that I've looked at with um, some colleagues um, trying to predict um, or explain Brexit identities alongside these, these identities, and they work differently for different groups. Um, ethnicity is particularly interesting in that, in that mix um, because we find that for um, white voters who express their ethnic identities being important to them, that tends to relate to leave voting, which we might see as an expression of populism, um, for minority groups who are much, much more likely to express their identity as being a positive part of their, their sense of self, but their expressing that identity um, is more likely to lead to a remain vote. So actually some of these identities operate in different ways for different groups. And whilst we've looked at that, because we've got the questions to look at that in relation to, to ethnicity, we've not got questions that look at education identity. So we can't start to try and unpack if those sim if similar kinds of processes uh, might be at work there. Just, just briefly, and it's a very, very basic question that one of you I hope can explain. Why is having a degree or not so central to these debates? What is the causal mechanism that links whether or not you've got a degree? I mean, is it your prospects or is it your values? And if so, why? Shall I take that one, given that I wrote a whole paper trying yeah. to explain exactly that? Um, I think, first of all, I think um, academic, political science, economics and so on have not been very good at tackling that issue. They've tended to see education either as a mechanism for allocating people into jobs or a mechanism of self-selection into higher education. Both of those processes happen. I'm not suggesting for a minute that they don't, but we have seen a process of value change that occurs during the period when people are in higher education. And actually we see the same happening for those that then don't go into higher education. So actually the gap between them gets wider, but it isn't only the graduates that are changing, the people not going into higher education are moving further away from, from the starting point as well. Um, and the work I've done on this suggests that there is something going on in education that is real and that we need to take seriously. It's very hard to say exactly what that is. I don't think it's lefty lecturers giving out messages in the classroom, but there are so a whole 
set of socialization processes that happen when you move away from home, mix with different people and experience and have a whole different set of experiences. It also sets your life course differently. People go, that go to university form families later, leave home later, all sorts of things that actually change the dynamic of the life course that we don't really properly understand. But we see this everywhere. The, the key divide is between those that have experienced higher education and those that haven't. And it, and it comes across in a whole, a whole array um, of political and social values when you, when you begin to dig underneath them. If I could just come in briefly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, yeah, Paula's paper is, 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 is brilliant on this, so making the point about the role of socialization at university, but a couple of things as well to keep in mind in terms of where, where we might be headed. I think if you buy the idea that going to university and mixing with people who are like you can have a profound coming of age experience, can help to nudge you perhaps further down the line that you were already perhaps hard hardwired to be to be going down anyway, that it can nudge you in a little bit more of a, a socially liberal direction, um, shall we say. Um, just you know, keep in mind the fact that firstly, we, we know the education system is still highly unequal. We know that more young people than ever before are not going to university or staying home with mum and dad. So they're not likely to, ha to have the same socialization experiences that perhaps people had in the 60s and the 70s where you, know, you would go into the same college, you would be on campus, you would live and, and work there and, and, and those effects perhaps would be, would be quite strong. Um, and that might explain, for example, why one in four university graduates opted against the advice of uh, many political leaders by voting for Brexit. I mean, we are seeing um, things that aren't, that do not fit neatly into the graduate versus non-graduate discussion that we've been having. And, and also beyond that, we now have, I think, a growing pile of evidence to suggest that um, university graduates actually do not have um, enhanced prospects in, in, in some areas, that we do uh, have a society that is questioning the benefits of university education more than ever, and we also have, as I think Paula alluded to, an emerging debate about the extent to which our universities are genuinely um, giving students viewpoint diversity and experience of views and opinions that they will need in order to develop critical thinking and thought later in life. Um, and so I think all of the points about education need to be, um, you know, need to be sort of, you know, are going to evolve in different ways in the future. Um, it is the strongest, I think, anchor for this new cultural divide of that, there's no question. But that also too partly is now being overlapped by geography, which again, we don't talk about really in the literature on populism. We don't really talk about populism, apart from saying, you know, there's an urban rural divide. That's basically where we stop. Uh, we don't really do much in a very detailed way. Um, but what you now see is just the extent to which different educational groups are sorting themselves out geographically. And so we're, we're increasingly being pushed into these ideologically homogenous sort of cultural cocoons where people are not actually having the different experiences with the other side of the value divide, if you like. And now I think it, these are the challenges that will ultimately take us through the 2020s and beyond. I mean, beyond COVID, beyond inequality, Obviously, you know, we can debate the relationship between the two, but I think if the education debate obviously will continue to evolve. So would you say then that shoving a load of Treasury officials into Darlington is the sort of thing the government should be doing? 
just to well, you know i'm very supportive of what the government's doing on leveling up but I, i'm not supportive because i think that particular initiative is going to bring jobs but i think symbolically some of that is very important for communities that have had you know a lack of inward serious inward investment for 40 years um mm. so i don't think that particular measure on its own is enough but uh i do think spending 100 billion on capital infrastructure um and and and, and investing seriously in, in institutions and things that lie beyond you know checks um uh i think is really important i think it's a it's a it's a it's, a, it's the ideal reply yeah i mean i have to say personally speaking for a bunch of economists moving to my neighborhood i'd leave but uh martin did you want to come back on this question of university education Sure, but I saw Paula, I think, wave her hand. So oh, gonna... did you wave? Sorry, Paula. No, no, that's okay. I just wanted to pick up on, on something Matt said right at the end there, which might take us on to the next part of the debate a little bit, is that this talking about this divide, be before COVID, this education divide was important and it was going to continue to structure um, political divides, social divides over the coming years. But I think actually the crisis accentuates that to a really serious degree because it becomes it becomes really central to the kind of working from home, not working from home divide. Hold that thought, Paul, I'm going to come back to you and we'll start off, what does COVID mean for populism with you in a sec? I'll just let Martin come in on the earlier point and then I'll come back to you. Oh, just, just, just very quickly, I mean, I, I agree with most of what's been said about this polarisation. I, I would just add that, again, the economy plays a role in this, partly because that's part of what's driving the geographical uh, segmentation uh, or segregation even, which I think is really important. But, but basically because of the way the economy has developed, we, we get a more intense uh, separation between uh, graduates and non-graduates in terms of the sort of social environments they're in, which are to a large extent also in the workplace, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But also this may be changing, but to the extent that you've had income inequalities driven by educational inequalities, you know, how much money you have determines your lifestyle and lifestyle determines in part what sort of, you know, how you think about things and who you talk to about things. Um, so, so there are a lot of economic drivers to of this, this sort of drifting apart of lifestyles, uh, social values, your outlook on life. Uh, which is formed, you know, in your in your daily interactions with people past university too, I would think. Okay. Interesting. Sorry, Paula. Uh, so we're going to have to talk about COVID. You've segued brilliantly into it. What does COVID mean for these divides? Just take take it where you where I where I butted in. Sorry. Okay. So I think there's two points to make in relation to this debate. At well, no, there's lots of points, but two two that connect at this particular moment. First of all, as I was saying, I think our experiences of the COVID crisis are very much divided by along that education divide with those that have gone through university and into graduate education, being much more likely to be able to work from home because they're in the knowledge economy um, compared to those that ha are having to go out and continue to work. And we're seeing that present in terms of this relationship between um, deprivation at the area level and um, COVID rates as well. So I think that's a divide that's going to become even more important. Um, but I think there's also, in terms of moving this, this debate onwards, the one thing that COVID has, has kind of really put back onto the agenda for everybody are borders. Um, and so national borders and national identities look like they could become even more important than they have in the past, because actually um, the, the instinct to close down when under threat, and COVID is a threat, um, 
seems to me to be more likely to come to the fore through this crisis. We know that um, the set of social values, the liberal set of social values that we've been talking about, earlier work from Inglehart in, in the 70s suggested this came about in part because people were not under threat. They didn't face any threats to their security. They had economic security. They were able to pursue um, kind of self-realization goals and so on. But actually a crisis like this puts everybody feeling back under a sort of threat. And that I think has the potential to move values in ways that are not what people are currently predicting around the kind of build back better agenda. Would you like to speculate on how they might be different? How what what happens might be different? No, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> just just one thing on that. Just one, one thing that struck me last year, and I, I was thinking the same point, Paula. That if you think about all the conditions that you know Inglehart and his colleagues argued in the seventies were sort of fueling the the liberal drift, if you want to call it that, or what he called the silent revolution in in values toward a more sort of liberal end. Um, you know, they were basically increased economic security and, and rapid expansion, the rapid expansion of education. And then basically, as those continued over time, different generations basically become more, more liberal in, in orientation. And I was struck sort of last year thinking, well, on the one hand, we have a global pandemic, which is now obviously being accompanied by a, a, an economic crisis or at least a, a debt crisis. So, you know, the economics have become much more shaky. Um, the education revolution has kind of continued, you know, to new heights. We had a record number of university applications last year, despite COVID, new highs in the UK system. Yet we also saw, you know, very prominent campaigns around Black Lives Matter statues and what you might loosely call the sort of identity politics end. So I think this is probably going to go now in, in, in quite unpredictable um, directions because we do have new generations, as we discovered yesterday with the debate over Mexit. Um, we do have new generations of voters that have, you know, come of age completely online. You know, my Zuma students, for example, are the first generation to have spent their whole life online. They've had fundamentally different cultural experiences. And I think the only thing that I would add to your discussion over education, Paula, is we know that education has a profound formative experience, but so does culture. I mean, so does the, the wider culture in which generations are coming of age. And if you look around today and you know, the social media, celebrity, movie, film, you know, culture is politicized um, in a way that I don't think was true half a century ago, uh, or was at least not as obvious. Um, and I think that too is, is probably going to have profound socialization effects as well going forward. Um, I don't know where that will take us, but uh, it was more a response than, than um, a, a prediction. Martin, do you want to come in on this, though? And the question was about uh, COVID. And yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, I, I completely agree with, with Paula that, that this, you know, what COVID has done in terms of intensifying the difference between uh, graduates and non-graduates in both economic prospects and actually health prospects, because the non-graduates typically have to you know, they have to be physically present for their jobs. Uh, so they either lose their income or they lose their health or some of both, um, whereas people like us are, are typically spared. I mean, it's, it's just crucial. Uh, so I think, you know, everything now depends on how governments deal with, with this, since I believe that the economy drives quite a lot of, of these political responses I would predict that if they don't fix it, you know, if they let these economic divisions 
get even more entrenched, you're going to get an even fiercer backlash than what we've seen in the last in the last 10 years. That would be my prediction. But the other point I want to make is that uh, clearly government is back in a, in a big way. Uh, everybody sees, almost everybody sees that in, in a public health crisis, you need the government to to intervene, to run things, to manage things. Governments are, you know, government authority is pretty much still everywhere national. So in a sense, that will drive you to to focus on the national. So that's a, it's a slightly different take on, on the same thing that, that Paula was, was saying. It'll be most interesting, I think, to see how this plays out inside the EU, uh, where there's obviously been different levels yeah. and, and disappointment with the EU level and so on. But that's where you have the possibility of alternatives. Everywhere, everywhere else, it's the national government. And even there, the national government is the focal point. Uh, and it has to be competent. Uh, Competence clearly matters in these situations. And that's why in countries where you have sort of clearly delineated populist parties, they haven't done well, right, in this crisis. Uh, because it turns out that experts are good to have and listen to. Uh, competent management is good. It's, it's no surprise, really, that a competent vaccine rollout is good for the government. It'd be more surprising if it, if it didn't show up in the polls. Um, so all of these things, I think, you know, blur the picture a bit. I would say that if the economic fallout isn't addressed with forceful policies, uh, like maybe we see in the US, then you risk a much bigger political polarization and backlash later. But on the other hand, the fact that effective government and competence matters has kind of taken the wind out of the sails of, of populism a bit. I mean, just to play devil's advocate, I think it's right to say that it's non-graduates who are disproportionately likely to have been uh, helped by the furlough scheme. I mean, is this is that likely to have an impact on their perceptions? If if populism is about uh, the real people versus the establishment, and actually this the establishment in the form of the state is now seen to be helping people out in a very overt and direct way, do you think that might have an impact on populist sentiment? and re, sort of realign things. Well, I can pick up on that a little bit in that something that occurred to me um, whilst Martin was speaking is that at least in the UK, and, and it's very difficult to follow news very closely across the world at the moment because we are, we are very much in our national bubbles, um, but at least in the UK, there have been repeated attempts to use populist vehicles to make anti-lockdown claims, anti-mask claims, and so on. And they haven't succeeded to get a really big movement behind them. And I think actually that shows some of the limits of populist appeals if they don't also connect with people's fundamental values. And generally speaking, those that have connected with the populist movements or parties in the UK are perfectly comfortable with rules they like rules and therefore they're perfectly comfortable with lockdowns and masks they're also perfectly comfortable with government intervention because they've tended to be um broadly speaking on on the left in terms of wanting to see more state intervention in the economy so actually the idea that it will shift these fundamental values very much seems to me to be mistaken because actually it's doing it's doing at a government level exactly the things that these groups of voters would want. It's inter intervening in the state and putting in place strong rules around behaviour to, to kind of generate um, norms that people will, will support. Anyone else want to come in on, on this, on the furlough? You don't have to. I'll just come back on one point. Uh, I, I think it's too early and too early to say that 
that populism has had a bad crisis. I, I think that was a, a narrative that that really got going during the early months of the crisis when Bolsonaro's ratings tanked and Donald Trump um, lost the election. But I think if you look at most party systems in Europe and um, you know um, North America, Latin America, they've basically um, stabilized or they've certainly consolidated um, their support. And certainly our argument in national populism was that essentially these parties aren't going anywhere because they've tapped into these deeper these, te- these deeper new, di- new dimensions that we've been talking about today. And I think, you know, if you look at what we've seen this year, I mean, if you look at Portugal, uh, another democracy that wasn't really ever supposed to have a successful populist party after the dictatorship, or you look at uh, Vox in Spain or um, the stabilization of polling in, in, um, in a number of these countries, Bolsonaro's ratings have improved. You know, Trump got 10 million more votes than he did four years ago, expanded his electorate, it didn't narrow. Uh, I don't see personally much evidence at all to suggest that the, the crisis has, has hit populist parties. Um, but, it, but it does raise, I think, questions over, you know, what are we likely to see in the 2020s? And I noticed both the IMF and um, uh, another academic paper have, have found exactly the same thing now, which is that after global pandemics hit, um, and, they, and remembering they were looking at past pandemics that were much smaller, the SARS pandemic uh, and Ebola and uh, a few others. Um, and they both found that firstly, the Gini coefficient increases, um, you know, five years after a pandemic has hit, you, you still have a, a, a raised level of inequality. But secondly, you also have higher levels of social unrest. Um, now we've already seen that, you know, in the, the Netherlands, the US uh, and elsewhere. But I think certainly the evidence would suggest that you know, we have good reason, I think, to expect a more volatile um, climate as we come out of as we come out of the pandemic. And to that, we already know that most of the political um, uh, anchors have weakened considerably over the last two two or three decades. We know that party identification is down. We know that volatility overall is up, uh, and we know that voters are much less predictable than they once were. Um, so. This is sort of me saying, you know, we can't predict what's going to happen in the 2020s. But I think the one thing we can say with some, you know, confidence is it, it's probably going to be quite volatile. Um, and we might not end up going back to good old fashioned stability. Martin's now moved from the top of my screen to the bottom of my screen. Did you want to come in on this? Martin? I, 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 I'd love to comment on the bits of, of Matt uh, that I heard because I, I, I don't know, I disconnected for about 15, 20 seconds. Um, but, but I agree with, with most of what's been said. I just wanted to, to, to point out uh, that we also want to look at how the, the parties we classify as populist, to what extent do they remain populist in, in content, uh, whatever we, we mean by that. But you know, I note, for example, that you now have in Italy, you have Matteo Salvini supporting Mario Draghi, the ultimate elite technocrat for prime minister, right? So, so you have uh, you have policy changes also in uh, in where these parties go. But but I agree with with the big point that things will be volatile, and and it allows me to make another argument for caring about the economy, which is that whatever the relative strength in terms of causality here, uh, I think in terms of what politicians and governments can do about things in terms of policy, the economy is where you can do more than in terms of affecting or manipulating or directing people's values. Um, so in a sort of, from a sort of purely pragmatic sense, looking at, well, 
people, you know, at the levers of, of social society or of the economy. There are things you can do to change economic policy fast. There's much less you can do about people's values. But that for me is an argument to think about, even if you believe that the economic causes are relatively less important than the cultural causes, it can still be that where society ends up has more to do with the economy because you can make bigger changes there. Can I quickly just go back to your question, Aram, because I think we drifted away from it. Will will this preference for government support yeah. remain? So I just want to say that, look, this really depends on which country you, you're asking about, because for the continental European countries, they've spent a lot of money as well. But for them, it was mostly about just letting the normal mechanisms they have in place work and you know fill up with money. So you had a furlough scheme pretty much in Scandinavia, say, or the short, short work scheme in Germany. It's just that a lot more people had to use it. So you need to put the money in place. In the US, in the UK, and to some extent in the US, you kind of had to really build something up from scratch. So I think that was a much bigger change. Hmm. Uh, and the fact that on the whole, the furlough scheme in the UK has been immensely popular, or at least uncontested largely, except sort of on the margins, the modalities of it. But nobody's really said, well, you know, we, we, we shouldn't have gone in massively uh, and subsidized people's wages. Um, I think that's really significant. And that, again, even if the scheme is ended, that's something you can't unlearn. It will clearly be if something like this happens again, there will be a demand to do the same thing. That's a change. I mean, would it be fair to say we're on the cusp of the most enormous social experiment in the sense that, you know, if the Biden plan works and we see a significant decrease in support for Trumpian politics, that's pretty compelling evidence that there's an economic driver to this. Matt, I suspect you won't agree, but. Well, no, I mean, I just I just don't think that would be the test of 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 what will impact Trump, um, the Trumpian politics. I think ultimately right. in the US, it will be whether conservatives perceive issues like migration, border security, what they will argue is an assault on American values, whether whether all of that stuff loses its salience. Um, you know, I think, you know, if we enter into a sort of, you know, roaring 20s and we don't trip over into problems with inflation and, you know, things go, things go well economically, um, you know, Will that undermine? Will that undermine support for, for for Trumpian politics? Personally, I think it will have to go hand in hand with with changes on the on the cultural side too. Because if you still have you know the stuff that really animated Republicans, um, migrant caravans on the border, you know perceived breakdown of social cohesion, the coasts moving away from Middle America, a lot of that stuff, the social change point that. That Matt Grossman makes, I think, so eloquently. Um, you know, that's the stuff that we know really drives support on the Republican side, uh, and that's the stuff I think I'll be watching. In the same way in the UK, and we we have a big experiment unfolding here too. Don't forget, mm-hmm. we have a large number of Hong Kongers arriving in the UK. Uh, yes, overall levels of migration are going down, but our story about migration is changing, and I personally would argue in a positive way. Um, but that's going to be a big test. I think it's going to be a big test over the next few years for leavers, for conservative voters who probably voted for Boris Johnson, expecting some changes in those areas. It may be that actually where we end up at the end of the 2020s is a very different UK model from what they were expecting. It may be more diverse in some ways, certainly less white in some ways, um, will be, I think, more 
are characterized by a lot more churn and change, you know, uh, with regards to um, how the economy is running and, and so on. Uh, and that, too, is going to be one of the most interesting experiments in politics to see how that plays out. I mean, do you think the fact that our, our, our population, I think, is estimated to be about a million lower than it was uh, post-pandemic, uh, do you think that plays into this at all? That will alter attitudes towards migration? Well, the good news story in Britain, I mean, contrary to what we're, we're often told, the good news story is public attitudes around migration have improved significantly since the Brexit referendum. Um, the salience of migration has declined. Um, public tolerance... Um, I would argue has has increased at least the evidence that I I think points to that. Um, the dip in migration, obviously, I personally think will be temporary. I think we'll be back to net migration levels of plus 250, 300 very soon. Um, and then I think it will be a test for Johnson's government um, as to whether voters care about that now that they feel that they have greater control over that issue, um, or whether they feel that that's somehow you know a betrayal of what they perceive Brexit to have been all about. Um, and, and that ultimately is, is something that, that will take us through the 2020s. My personal in instinct hunch is that we're not quite yet done with the migration debate in the UK, um, but uh, we'll have to see. Now, my, I mean, profound apologies to the audience because I've, I've basically found this a bit too interesting, so I've ignored the questions that are coming in. So I'm just gonna, I wanna fire some of the questions that have come in from the audience at you all. You don't all have to answer all of them, but let me try and at least get through some of them. So the first is, how important has social media been in explaining the rise of populism? We can pass or phone. I, no, I, I just, someone else, should, I was giving it over to somebody else. If we're not comfortable with that, if we feel it's not our area, that's fine. Anything, Martin, you'd like to say on that? I'm not dropping you in it. Feel free to say no. I, I shouldn't say anything because I'm, I'm not an expert. I just note that other media are still important, right? Uh, TV in the US has been tremendously uh, important. Um, that's all I'll say. Okay. Paul probably uh, has some, some surveys on this, no? <laughs> We're dropping each other in it. I like this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think the social media actually is very differentiated and you need to perhaps think about it in terms of different aspects of social media. Um, because they have very different profiles of people that use them and they use them in very different ways. Um, so it's not something that I'm an expert on. I can, I can tell you how the profile of Twitter users differs from, from the population as a whole, but I'm not sure that's really very helpful to this debate. No, no, that's all right. I prefer honesty on this. Uh, we've got a question in from Jill Rutter, brackets the other one, which I presume means the British future Jill Rutter uh, and not our own Jill Rutter. And it's about... Whether well, there's two. Th I'm going to I'm going to pass your question, Jill. And there are two bits to it, I suppose. I mean, the first is, is UK politics going to develop more, is it become more similar to US politics going forward? Which is a massive question. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. But Jill splits her question up and saying English, Welsh, and Scottish society. So I wonder whether how much of what we've been talking about has been to do with England and less, far less to do with Wales and. Scotland in terms of populism? You can answer either or both of those. I, I took liberties yeah, with your question, quick, Jill. Quick, quick stab about. at the first one, because yep. the, the second one I'll really leave to, to my colleagues. Uh, but I also would like to kind of connect it back to the previous question that I know I've had 30, 30 more seconds to think about. I mean, one thing that's really interesting is how there's now there's now being built up these alternative uh, broadcast media in the UK, right? Uh, what's mm -hmm. the... 
what, what's the name of this new sort of fox clone uh, that uh, that is coming up? Um, so you know the, the the BBC has been under attack from all kinds of sides, but you see uh, you see this sort of diversification in the broadcast media uh, that I think is a going in a U.S. direction. So I think that's an example of of how yes, there is some movement in in that direction. Uh, and since I'm now talking about kind of media. Uh, I would add one thing on, on the social media question that we didn't have much to say about. Uh, when we talk about populism as a style, Matt made this distinction earlier on, mm. I mean, clearly social media serve that style, right? Virality favors the outrageous, the uh, the divisive and so on. So I think I think that is true. And you can draw parallels here with new media in older times, favoring that kind of insurgent break in uh, because the insiders no longer have control over what what passes for, for acceptable public debate. Let me just a quick plug on that. We've got Tim Harford on our podcast this Friday. I mean, he's very good on everything, but he's quite interesting on social media and what it means for our capacity to talk about things calmly and rationally. But Paul and Matt, either of you want to come in? There's the, are we becoming more like the US and England, Wales, Scotland? We'll leave Northern Ireland out because it's, well, very complicated. <laughs> I, I can come in a little bit on each of those, I guess. I don't think at the moment we're becoming more like the US because I think our politics is a little bit more fragmented and we haven't seen the polarisation into two camps that we see um, in the US. There's, there's more going on in terms of the cross-cutting divides. And in some ways, we've got this kind of blend of, in values terms, quite a European looking model, but in party system terms, quite a US looking model. And those two things are sort of fighting with each other. Um, and which wins out in the end, I don't, I don't know. Um, and that, I suppose that point is, is kind of seen even further when you start to talk about um, Scotland and Wales, where the, the systems have got more parties, so therefore it allows a bit more of the expression of those values to come out more clearly in voting. Um, but it's difficult to say, I think, exactly how populism works in some of these different places because we haven't got the good enough data to be able to pull out some of these different trends. Um, and we'd say it's something we need to keep a, a careful watch on is how um, Scottish and Welsh national identities in particular connect with some of these themes around populism because they don't necessarily need to be in opposition. Matt? Yeah, I think on social media, one of the aspects about that, which I find quite interesting and also worrying, is just the extent to which it is breaking us off into these very different ideological uh, echo chambers and you know you go back to the 70s and the 80s and essentially the national conversation was organized around three or four television channels and programs that you know it was not unusual to find 25 million people tuning in to watch the same you know television show it was a fundamentally collective experience and I think as we've seen the media landscape fragment those collective experiences are going to become fewer and fewer as we all choose the various things on Netflix and the various accounts on Twitter and so on that we want to watch. And that will, I think, tap into a broader problem that we have, not just in Britain, but many other advanced democracies, which is that um, most of the narratives that used to hold us together um, are either weakening or in some cases have given away altogether. And some of that has 
sometimes been for good reasons and depending on your personal view, but other times it's perhaps not been for good reasons. You think about the decline of the role of religion, think about the decline or the weakening of strong families, trade unions, representative politics, um, a shared sense of history, national identity, uh, revisiting um, the symbols and the, um, uh, the memories and the myths of nationhood. In some way or other, I think a lot of those have been challenged. And again, for some, in some cases, they've been challenged for good reasons. In, in others, I, I would argue for less good reasons. And so if you hold a, a value set that really does put an extremely um, strong premium on the nation and on the group and on stability and on cohesion, you know, the breakdown of those narratives is, is fundamentally threatening uh, and it is incredibly destabilizing. Uh, and, and so I don't think we, would, we will ever get as bad as the United States, um, but I do think it is going to get rocky in the UK as those narratives fragment, as our media landscape fragments, um, and as the groups that at one point did have a voice in politics, media and culture, have, if we're being honest, been excluded. Um, I mean, there is a reason why the British media should be challenged. And one of the reasons is because the British media is still very closed to many of the groups that have ended up voting for populist parties, if we're being honest with, us, with ourselves. Mm -hmm. We don't have enough columnists, commentators, newspaper editors, and so on, who come from those backgrounds. We don't have anywhere near enough. In the same way that in popular culture, film, media, so on, again, it, it is a bit of a close shot. And Anand, I know that you and, and Jeff have made this point before, um, that we've basically lost a lot of those voices that have then actually found their expression through populist parties. So there, there is a, a represent, representational point here that I think is, is, that stands quite apart from economics and culture, which is, have we given everybody in society sufficient voice uh, in the institutions that really matter? Just going to come in with another question from uh, the audience, which is, if it, is it the case that status discontent leads to support for right-wing populism? And if so, why doesn't it lead to support for left-wing populism too? Okay, I'll come in on, I'll bring in something I wanted to raise as, as a partial answer to that question. And partly in the UK context, it's a supply question. There isn't, if we're measuring this by voting. And that was the point I wanted to make actually, that if we measure um, support for populist, for support for populist ideas through votes for particular movements or parties, then we miss out the connection between political disengagement altogether and populism. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think that's a really big part of this story that has been um, missed in some respects. We've, it used to be the case that you would assume getting a high turnout, boosting turnout at an election, boosting turnout at a referendum would, would, would be to the advantage of the um, more liberal end of the scale because it meant that what you were turning out were young voters who didn't normally vote. What we've seen increasingly over recent years is those people that feel disconnected from angry with the system disconnecting from politics and actually then when they get angry enough to turn out to vote mm. at a referendum or so and it produces these what's what appear to be surprising results because they're the people that we expected just to always be disconnected from politics so I think the movement into and out of voting is really important in this in this context and something that's really been missed in terms of the debate about populism because we tend to use support for a movement as our measure of populism and forget about the fact that 
some people who might be anti-system in the way that Martin described at the start might actually be opting out altogether. And I think that's a real danger um, going forward if many of those people that turn to the Conservatives in 2019 end up really disappointed either by the migration statistics that Matt was talking about or by levelling up, not delivering what they thought it would, there's a, te them, there's a, a possibility there of a, of a whole nother group of voters that are really disengaged from our political system as a result. Can I add that in some European countries, you do get uh, a left-wing populist uh, effect. I mean, you get it in Greece and, and Spain, where the, the status in question was, I would say, something like an insubordinate status vis-a-vis -vis the EU system and the austerity regimes and, and all of this, where you got Syriza, and in Spain, you got the indignados, the indignance demonstrations, and later Podemos. You get it in Germany, where the Linke has to do with... Uh, with the uh, subordinate status of uh, of the former east eastern part of Germany, right? So, so I think you do get it, but yeah, that probably has to do with uh, with the supply side, as as Paula says, where there are good political entrepreneurs offering that on the left, uh, you can get it. There's also another more provocative point, and I know Anand probably want to wrap up as well, but there is a point about why national populists are better at tapping into status deficit issues today, which is that there are um, uh, within the sort of uh, the, the, the narrative of uh, identity liberalism or what Mark Lilla would call identity liberalism and Francis Fukuyama has talked about this too and the politics of recognition, that there is a narrative that um, unfortunately is leaving white working class men in particular feeling as though they've been stripped of status and esteem. Um, Peter Hall has a really nice paper on this, uh, looking at subjective evaluations of uh, social status um, among that group in particular. And Ben Cobley's book, The Tribe, looks at how that narrative has taken place in British politics, whereby we have sort of, I say accidentally, because I think it's come from a good place. I think people have been driven by good intentions, but we've, we, we've sort of, created a narrative whereby these groups have felt that they are the unfavoured groups in society uh, and that has led them I think to increasingly search for status esteem and recognition um, and, and that has benefited the right much more than the left um, but uh, we can perhaps leave that there. Okay I'm going to try and squeeze one in we've got a couple of minutes and I'm really sorry I haven't got through more of your questions let me just say by way of a plug on Friday we have a whole session at 12, which is simply devoted to your questions to some of our teams. So if you didn't get your question answered today, then as long as it's about economics and not simply about politics, then turn up on Friday and you'll have a greater chance. You probably have a competent chair as well. In fact, you will, you'll have Paula. So your questions are more likely to be answered. But the final question I suppose is, are, are populist movements uniquely dependent on having a strong and charismatic leader? Is there a particular link when it comes to populism with the leader. There's a couple of people asking about that. How important is leadership for populist movements? Very important, uh, as it is for all. Not more all so, though. Sorry? Not more so, I suppose, is the implication. Um, well, I mean, it, it certainly is very important in that if you look at what's happening in British politics today, um, we know that um, public approval of um, Boris Johnson is really important to driving the poll ratings that we're seeing at the moment. And we know that leadership was incredibly important during the Brexit referendum. We know that how people felt about the various leaders had a really big impact on how they voted 
at the referendum. I think for populist parties that are almost presidential in style um, uh, and are able to violate taboos over issues around race, gender and sexuality, um, uh, that it becomes incredibly important. Um, my PhD supervisor, Roger Eatwell, would argue that in populist parties, charisma is actually fundamental for two reasons. One is it's, it's really important for external reasons in rallying voters that are not, as Paula said, usually political, but drawing them into politics, a fresh face and somebody who's saying something different. But also more importantly for populist parties, charisma is very important internally because these parties tend to be very um, disorganized and chaotic and can fall apart very quickly. So what you often find in the, in the sort of early breakthrough period of populist parties is, is the ones that make it are the ones that have the very strong charismatic leaders who are able to kind of carry that small group with them, which is, you know, if you go back to 1970s France, you know, people forget this, but Jean-Marie Le Pen was trying to break through for 10 years. Uh, and there were lots of parties on national populist parties that failed to break through in France in the 70s. But one of the theories as to why the FN ended up being the main representative of that current was because of Le Pen himself, that he was just simply more um, charismatic and efficient. And internally, that really made a difference. It allowed the party to hang together. I can give you a sentence each, you two, because I've just run over now. If you want, if you want a sentence. Martin? Just one more reason, which has more to do with the substance. I was saying earlier on that that the kind of the style of populism, if you like, or this uh, this idea that the movement is there to uh, to represent the real people against the elites that have captured the state for their own benefit, that kind of leads you to less respect for institutions and bureaucracy and uh, the rules based order, to use that term. You know. The, Populist voters, I think, will tend not to respect them as much and expect that they should not stand in the way of real change. But for that, then you need politicians. You will naturally support politicians who are more willing to break with those, to break the rules, right? To, you know, illegally prorogue parliament, for example. But, you know, pick the equivalent in, in other places. Don't let the rules become a hindrance on what needs to be done for the people's sake. Brilliant. I'm sorry I've overrun. I'm sorry I haven't got to all of your questions, but I thought that was utterly fascinating. So I'd like to thank Martin, uh, Matt and Paula for that. Thank you for giving us your time today. That was wonderful. And look out for our next event in this economic series, which is tomorrow at the same time on inequality. Tomorrow is Thursday. Yes, indeed. Tomorrow is Thursday. Well done. Uh, same time, same place exactly the same place, let's face it. Uh, look forward to seeing you again and thank you all very, very much indeed. That was great.